Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, welcome to the podcast. It's Mark Graben here, episode 404 for March 10th, 2021. You'll learn more about him in a minute, but our guest today is Nate Hurl from the Cleveland Clinic. We're going to be talking about the past year, COVID testing, COVID vaccination, what they've done, what they've learned there at Cleveland Clinic. So if you want to have show notes and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 404. Thanks for listening. As always, please rate and review the podcast. And if this is your first time listening, please subscribe or follow us. So again, for show notes, that's leanblog.404. And again, I want to thank our friends at Styles Associates for sponsoring the podcast. And we're joined today by Nate Hurl. He's a returning guest. He was here get uh, episode 282. Um, Nate's the senior director of, I hope this is still accurate, correct me if this uh, is not correct, from LinkedIn, uh, senior director of enterprise continuous improvement at Cleveland Clinic. Does that sound right, Nate? Indeed it is. It's still my job, yes. Okay, well, good. I should have double-checked that before we started recording, but... Well, it's, it's good. It might have made for some awkward conversation otherwise. <laughs> This is not my uh, podcast about mistakes, but I make mistakes anyway. Um, but Nate was a guest. Episode 282, he was joined by one of his colleagues and partners in continuous improvement there at Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Lisa Yarian. But the stage is yours today, Nate. So welcome back. Thanks for having me, Mark. Glad to be here. And, and speaking of stages, I mean, it was a virtual stage. Um, but uh, Nate was recently one of the keynote speakers at the virtual Society for Health Systems Conference. We've crossed paths. Nate and I have both been at that conference um, together, and I'm really glad you were able to speak. Um, how, how did that go? Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, as you indicated, it was virtual, so it was different. Uh, you know, speaking of mistakes with any type of presentation, you know, we recorded it ahead of time. That way we could avoid all the technical snafus. But then the technical snafus happened with the recording, so I had to do it live. Uh, so <laughs> that, that was a fun experience. Actually, it was great. Wow. It was great. You know, in many ways, it was fun. It was a little bit more spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a little bit more personable. And we had some great discussion within the chat. You know, part of the takeaways for the virtual conference is it really enabled, I think, the audience to have a dialogue with each other while the while I was sharing what we were doing at Cleveland Clinic, where they could build off each other and the questions. And so then, you know, as we got towards the end, naturally the questions were teed up and we were really able to have some great dialogue. So, you know, it was kind of uh, one-way audio, but it was two-way in terms of communication. You know, you miss seeing people's faces and knowing really how people are reacting to what's going on and what points might be resonating with them or where their body language is indicating more curiosity and perhaps need to explain a little bit more. So we missed on that part, but overall, Mm -hmm. it was uh, still great to be able to share what we've been up to over the last 10 years or so. Well, it's interesting if you're on a live stage in a real room and people are texting back and forth, you don't see that. I guess in a way, the chat maybe is a, a, a form of that. You get to see what people are thinking and reacting to. It's better than nothing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so... You, you see the chat popping up, but naturally you're concentrating on what you're going to talk about. Uh, but it was also good to review afterwards and see what was interesting to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you probably um, 
did you share a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, about this past year? It's been maybe almost exactly 12 months now to ramping up for, um, you know, the discovery and the first cases of yeah. COVID. Was that a large part of what you covered? Actually, it wasn't for the purposes of, of that conference. They had many other talks that were talking about COVID response and uh, different projects and, and initiatives that people were involved in. You're right, we're coming up on a year. I remember very visit, visibly, um, it, it feels like I was right back in that spot uh, when I got a phone call on March 11th at 12.25 p.m. saying, Nate, what are you doing at one o'clock? <laughs> and I said, what do you need me to do? And they said, will you come to this meeting? We need to have drive-through testing up by Saturday, three days later. I said, sure. What's drive-through testing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's how we got started almost a year ago exactly. March 11th I believe was the day I flew home uh, from a healthcare client. And that was uh, we're coming up on a year since I've been able to be on site with anybody and 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 you know we didn't know how long that that pause uh, was going to be. I think we, we you know we knew for a couple of weeks the reports and expectations were coming. Um, but yeah, I mean, a year ago, we didn't really know what was in store for us. So, I mean, what, 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 what happened then? You got, you got that call, you have this mission, there's the urgency, what, what happened? And I I think maybe the related question to weave in is building upon what you had already been doing, you and your colleagues um, at Cleveland Clinic around lean and continuous improvement. Yeah. So no, I think there's a there's a couple spots. So one, the the fact that there was a, a phone call asking for help, I spoke to the previous relationship that we had built across the organization, and then specifically what they were looking for were really two things. One was to help get organized around thinking about how to solve this problem. Right, we had a new problem to solve. This particular answer to what matters most didn't exist a month previous, right? We didn't need drive-through testing. And so all of a sudden, it was a radical shift. But we had great clarity around that problem that we needed to solve. Drive-through testing up and running by Saturday. Uh, So they were looking for how do we get started? And as we worked through that over the next couple of days, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, then it was how do we make it better? And so really those two parts were what they were looking for help with. And that's what our team does across the organization. We've been working towards that over the last 10 years, as I had mentioned, and continuing to grow and develop in both how do we get started and then how do we make it better. Mm -hmm. So what I hear you saying, and maybe you can elaborate on this, is there was the urgency to get it up and running and maybe this mindset of it wasn't going to be perfect, but it needed to be good enough. Yeah. And then make it better using the methods that you've used at Cleveland Clinic. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So when we we got started on that Wednesday, we said, okay, we need to be open at 11 a.m. on Saturday. All right. What does open mean? Right. What is it that we need to to really focus on? And at that point, it was pretty clear answer. First was was safety. And there were two dimensions to safety at this point, right? One dimension was our caregiver and patient safety from COVID itself. Tremendously unknown still at this point, right? What to do, how to do it. But we had very good knowledge from our infection preventionists around how to prevent the spread of these kinds of diseases. And so it was, how do we develop, make sure we have a safe process 
where our caregivers aren't getting sick and also they aren't spreading it perhaps to the patient that's coming in behind for a subsequent mm-hmm. test that may not actually have COVID, right? So that was the first element of safety. The other element of safety, which was completely new to healthcare, we'd never done before, was the fact that cars were now driving through our buildings with people in them, right? They didn't literally come through our buildings, but we did use a parking garage. Uh, So it would be covered from the snow and the wind and the rain and and all of that, which was an important early decision about how to set this up. We were looking at a surface lot. Uh, We're in Cleveland, Ohio. Believe it or not, the weather's not perfect every day like it is today. And so we decided to move inside a garage. So we set up and made sure we had safe practices for when we opened. We had this other question that went along with it, which was, how many patients do we need to take care of? That becomes another, obviously, critical part of the design is understanding the demand. And that was a complete unknown. And so what we decided to do was to take care of as many as we could. And our goal was always to create a process where we could handle more. But when we opened initially on Saturday morning, we were only taking care of about 30 patients an hour at that point. Uh, I say only because we were able to make a lot of improvements over those days. And I, I, yeah, that, that's a fascinating challenge of trying to design a process when the demand is really unknown. I mean, that, that's, that's a startup challenge as much as it is an operations challenge, or it's both. Yeah, it's, it's very much both. You know, when we, we got started with it, Mark, we, um, we want, really wanted to get into the design right away because we were doing two things at the same time. We were building a physical facility. And we were figuring out the process. Usually you want to figure out the process before you build a physical facility, but we didn't have time to do that. We needed to do both. And so we came up with a couple important decisions early on. One was we were going to work really hard initially for our process to have no roots. We wouldn't bolt things down. It wouldn't be in a fixed position. We'd have the ability to move this around. Because there was a recognition that whatever we design on Saturday is probably not what we're going to be doing two days later. And so we, we use that as a principle, said no roots early on. The other part was we used and, and really mocked up a process. So we went to a conference room. We grabbed a bunch of chairs, set it up, pretended like it was a car. We got all the materials that we needed. And we said, OK, let's pretend we need to swab someone. And so we kind of figured out what to do and people would put gloves on and then they, you know, we kind of skip steps initially and like, no, we, we need to do all these steps. Well, I would normally do this, but we, we really focused and it took us about a day and a half. We were working through this process over and over and over again to make sure that we had something that we felt was safe again uh, from a COVID perspective initially. We then built in the safe part around the fact that we had moving vehicles and how do we ensure that our caregivers don't get hit by a moving vehicle, right? A really easy thing that can happen in that type of scenario. Uh, so we had to come up with specific methods that we use in terms of how the cars would index forward, um, you know, and, and some things that within the lean world, you'd say, don't do that because that's going to hamper production. But we did it because we needed to maintain safety. Well, I mean, yeah, to me, I think, you know, lean means safety first. And it sounds like you, you were putting some procedural methods in place, not not just um, like some organizations, you know, uh, 
I wouldn't accuse you of this, but people might put up signs saying like, be careful, there's people walking. Like, well, a sign can only do so much. What Can you, can you share some example of some of the procedural things that you put in place to really, um, if you will, error proof yeah. against um, an accident or ensuring safety? Yep. Yeah. Good, good question. Cause it is very much in the design, as you said, right. Asking people to be, be mindful. There's a big moving vehicle over there that could hurt you. Um, people are going to try to do their best, but they're going to get distracted by something. So the way that we designed it essentially was we had a very controlled lane, right? You can imagine a single lane that car. So once you're in, you can't get out, right? And the, the cars are following each other. And essentially we would have these cars index forward four at a time so there were four stations that were all doing the same thing in terms of the swabbing and the cars couldn't leave until all four were done so you can imagine you know swabbing perhaps yourself as an example pretty healthy person right you're like yep okay i can move my my body just fine as opposed to a, a child or perhaps an elderly person where it might take a little bit longer all four of those cars didn't necessarily finish at the same time so we but we'd have them wait and then we'd index them for forward together and index the next four. And the reason was we didn't want cars passing each other because that's when we knew we were creating the risk for vehicle accidents. And we were going to avoid that at all costs. And so then you had this, this challenge of um, unknown, unknown demand and then growing demand. What, what kind of thought went into having a process that could scale as the demand was um, becoming... Um, clear and as as people started showing up, like how how fast was the ramp up? How did you plan to be able to do a fast ramp up and not be capacity constrained? Yeah, so um, one in terms of let's start with the magnitude of the problem, and then we'll talk about the the design. So as I mentioned, we opened that Saturday at 11 a.m. We we're taking care of about 30 cars an hour. Um, the next day we came in, so we opened at 11 a.m. And the reason for that is we used the morning hours to train the new people that were coming into work that day. Uh, believe it or not, we didn't have a COVID staff, right? So we were getting people from wherever. And so we had to train them each and every day. So we used the first few hours in the morning to train them on the work. And so uh, the next morning I was coming in, it was probably about 630 or so. And there were cars lined up. And there's police officers outside. Remember, we open at 11. And I said, how long have the cars been here? First car showed up at 4 a.m. Hmm. Wow. Right? Um, and then where are these cars coming from? Everywhere. Different states, all over the place. So later that day, I, I walk out to see the cars, and they're, they're all over the city. Right? They are backed up. Um, the city police chief comes down to see what's going on. Hey, can you guys speed some things up here? There's a really starting to congest the city. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're trying. And so it was, um, it was hard for the team because there was no way we were going to be able to take care of all the demand. There was no way in those early days we were going to be able to take care of all the demand. So how do you define success in that scenario? Where you can't get to the ultimate success that you really want, which is taking care of everyone. How do you define success? How do you feel good about the progress you're making? And so we, we had a very simple solution to that. And that was uh, after you take the sample, you'd go ahead and you'd put it in the refrigerator and someone from the lab would come down uh, several times a day, typically every hour, hour and a half, grab all those samples and take them up to the lab and process them for the results. And so we asked that person, hey, when you take the stuff out of the fridge, can you just count how many you have? 
Like, yeah, sure. You just, just write it on this board here. Write it right out front. What time it is, how many we did. And so this did not take long for the team to figure out what was going on, right? And they would sit there with bated breath when he was counting and say, how many did we do the last hour? And they were really motivated by that, but they were not motivated to work harder. That is something we spent a lot of time talking about. We aren't going to do this by working harder. We're going to do this by improving the way that we do our work. And I think they were really uh, energized by that, as opposed to having to kind of bear it on their backs. They were able to, to bear it on their brains. And don't get me wrong, that was also difficult work because of the PPE they needed to wear. And the fact that it was March 14th in Cleveland, which means the high was about 35 degrees, right? So it was difficult work for them. Uh, but we really focused and we had this measure. And then we just started asking ourselves a very simple question. Uh, what problem do we need to solve now so that we can increase throughput? Our objective was to increase throughput. We wanted more patients to be seen. And we asked that question over and over again. We'd identify a problem. We can talk a little bit more about how we did that. But in three days time, we were up to from 30 an hour to 115 an hour hmm. by improving the work. That wasn't adding additional lanes or additional stations. That was that was process improvement within that capacity. Correct. Yes. And and so let's define that capacity as the the people that were there to do the work. So I mentioned earlier how we didn't have routes in, in our design, but we had four stations, right, that were essentially doing the same thing in terms of the swabbing. So as we did this work over a period of time, we were able to improve that enough where initially in this station, it was a team of maybe five, if I remember right. We were able to improve it enough where now it was a team of four. So four teams of four rather than four teams of five, we just freed up enough people to create another station, right? So those stations were replicas of each other, but by improving it, we didn't need additional labor or additional even physical space. We were able to, you know, as we do quite often, right? Continue to redesign and shrink the space that we're in so we don't have waste of walking or transport or motion. So it's um, a couple of things I want to kind of go back and maybe drill into a little bit. One is to hear more about the training method. When you say there was a couple of hours like that, to me, that sounds like a good investment in training. Um, oftentimes that gets sort of um, shortchanged. You know, we've seen instances around the world here in the vaccination stage of COVID um, where mistakes get made. Um, somebody doesn't realize that there are five or six doses in a vial. Mm -hmm. you know, this has happened around the world. And one of those cases most recently, I think it was Australia, um, the doctor said, yeah, I didn't do the online training. Mm -hmm. And so for one, I kind of thought, oh, online training. And then secondly, Clearly, I mean, the doctor's being blamed, but I would look at this as a system problem of the design of training and confirmation that training was not not just that it was done, like check the box, but that the message was really received. So can you talk about your training method? I'm, I'm sure yeah. it was a good one. So it first started with um, understanding what the work is, right? Writing down our standard work. So what we what we had was a dry erase board. That was on wheels. Again, this idea of no roots, because we knew we didn't want people to have to memorize what the work is. So we positioned the dry erase boards where they could see it while they're working with the patient, 
right? And it would have these key steps as reminders. Oh, yeah, that's a step one. This is step two. This is step three. So we made it very visual. It wasn't, hey, we're going to train you in the morning and you have to remember all of this when you go out there two, two hours later and, and start to do it. But that was there as a reminder. So we used this dry erase board again because we knew we were going to change what the standard work was from day to day. And we did. And just erase it. Go ahead, write the new work up. So, but once we have that standard work written on the dry erase board, they'd come in in the morning and we would have uh, individuals who were there to train them, again, from a safety perspective and a, a process perspective. So they would demonstrate it. Uh, they would break up into small teams and then they would practice themselves. Uh, with that. One of the things that we learned from that is from a quality and safety perspective, the training was going very well. Uh, people would come in, they knew what to do when we opened at 11 o'clock. And going back to how we were tracking our, our kind of throughput hour by hour, we saw on the third day, though this was three days in a row, that our productivity in the first two hours of being open was much lower than it was the rest of the day. And we're like, well, yeah, we, we have new people. They're, they're learning the job, right? They haven't done this job before. Every day we're having a new group of people. So we had a new problem to solve. How can we get this uh, productivity up where people are comfortable with the process from um, kind of a, 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 you know, being fluid with it and being uh, in a spot where they were able to do it, not only in the right content and the right sequence, but also the right timing. And so we changed how we did the, the training and how we had those teams where we would have one team leader carry over to the next day. So in these small groups of four now, one of the four of us did this job all day yesterday and can help the others very quickly, real time, say, we, we need to change this order a little bit, or even like stand two feet that way. You know, small things like that, that were either, again, um, for, for safety or productivity reasons, depending upon what the sequence of tasks were. So that was part of how we changed our training as well. So it was demonstrated, it was written on a board, they got to practice it, and they had a team leader that was right there with them correcting real time. And, and I, I, hearing that word practice, I mean, I think that's one of the keys of, um, you know, I've heard other organizations, you know, here in uh, vaccination times that also used mock-ups as a way of testing the design and improving it before they ever went live, um, but then also practicing and, and, and I think that gets shortchanged too often where, um, you know, I'm sure you know, I'm, I'm preaching the choir with you and maybe a lot of our audience, Nate, that training is not just about the information here, read this or here, watch this video, that there's this chance to practice and, and come up that learning curve or practice and practice and get feedback and, and, and coaching. So really happy to hear you use that word practice. Yeah, it's it's a it's a big part. I think if you want people to be successful, there's not too many things I try for the first time where I'm very good at it. So you have that flexibility in the training, the documentation, because you were learning a lot and, and there was continuous improvement. Um, you mentioned there's this emphasis on not working harder. And, and again, it's not like you were creating continuous improvement concepts that hadn't existed at Cleveland Clinic. So I'm, I'm curious, like what sort of methods were used? Were you doing huddles as I've seen throughout the hospitals? Mm -hmm. um, were there formal, um, you know, kind of 
continuous improvement boards or, or A3s going on? What, what what did you tap into to help with this new COVID testing effort? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So we would have a a huddle um, right at the beginning. So after we did the training, right before we opened, we would come together for a huddle uh, ish. <laughs> you know. It was, but we'd come to come together and it was a little bit, that was a little bit like a football huddle. And what was really impactful for me around that was the emotions in that huddle. People knew why we were there. People knew why we were there. And I mean, it was, you know, you really don't have this at work that often where you're like, I'm ready to run through a wall. Let's go. We can do this. Right. But it was so clear. It was so compelling. It was absolutely amazing to be a part of. So, so we had that huddle, but it's kind of set the tone for the day. And it set the tone for the day, both in terms of effort, but also in terms of thinking, right? And thinking about how to improve. And so then we, we had um, different operational leaders throughout, throughout the process. And we would come together um, basically every hour at that board. We would understand our performance in that last hour. And the reason that we needed to understand our performance is we probably just changed something. Did it work? Right? We needed to start there. Did it work? Did we get any better? Or, uh-oh, that, that didn't quite work the way we anticipated. Um, so we would start there. And then we would ask the question, what is the most important problem to solve? And, and I'll share, Mark, that was such a critical question, I, I believe, for the whole team. Because you can imagine when we were launching a process, there's lots of stuff that doesn't work well, right? There is a lot that, you know, if we had three months, we would have done differently. We had three days. And so there was an understanding that says, we're going to launch something that isn't perfect. Um, It's going to be functional. We'll make it better. But so everyone's bringing these problems and it can feel overwhelming when you look at this list and you look at the line continuing to grow throughout the city. It can feel overwhelming. And so we cut through that. We cut through that list by asking, what is the most important problem to solve? And we, we had a board with a, you know, a running list of those problems. And we pick one and say, OK, this is what we're going to work on in the next hour. We'd assemble a small team uh, to go and do that. And depending upon where that problem was, depended who was involved. If it was at the swabbing station, we'd work with the swabbers. We'd come up with ideas. We, we'd bring them forward. And, and one example uh, around that when we were working with with the swabbers, we kind of came back to this age-old question, what's value added, right? And, you know, why are we here? What is it? What is our purpose here? And, and our purpose was to swab. And everything else with that definition is waste. It might be necessary, uh, but it's, it's waste. And so how do we start to get rid of that? And so as we're standing there earlier, I had mentioned in our design how we have four cars pull up, people do their work, and then the cars leave and the next cars come in. So we're standing there and we're observing this and uh, these four cars leave and the team is standing there waiting. They're not doing anything. They're waiting for the next four to come in. We say, wow, while we're standing there, we're not doing anything. How can we have Mm -hmm. those next four kind of right behind, right? So as soon as these four leave, boom, there's the next four. And we have a security officer down there and he says, uh, police officer, he says, I'm trained to move vehicles. I'm trained to control traffic. How about I stand there, I will watch when these four move and I'll get these four moving right behind and I'll come to the end and I'll tell them exactly where to stop and then I'll go back and I'll do it again. 
oh, that's a fantastic idea. So we did that. That saved about maybe 10 or 15 seconds, which might not sound like a lot. But when you have a three-minute process, it's huge. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. It's adds huge. up. Yeah. And so uh, that was an that was an improvement that the team came up with, right? It was a cross-functional team, it, and so those types of examples were happening a ton over those three days. Mm-hmm. Were there any instances where I, I you know we've talked before about the tiered huddles? at Cleveland Clinic, was there any semblance of that where things that couldn't be addressed right within the team would get escalated? Yeah. Um, so there were a couple different places. When you think about the extended value stream, right, you have this collection process because that's really what we we're in the middle of, right? We we're in the middle of a collection, a sample collection. But downstream from that, you actually have running the samples and upstream from that, you have all the supplies that need to come in. And upstream from that, you have all the ordering that needs to be done by the physicians to enable people to have uh, have these. So what happened early on, again, so much of this was unknown. So when we opened that Thursday, we said, any physician can place an order for a COVID test. Well, you can imagine probably what happened, right? Now, in retrospect, we didn't know. But at that time, lots, right? And then we said, and so that was something that got raised up. It said, whoa, we got way more orders here than we can ever handle, unfortunately. right? We don't want to be in that spot, but that was the reality. So we are going to have to reduce this in some way. And so that was a different problem for a different group to solve. Uh, and they would end up making decisions about, you know, based upon symptoms or um, uh, risks, you know, patients' uh, comorbidities and, and such. So other groups handled that. Other groups helped handle supply chain related issues. Uh, so we maybe we were running low on the swabs themselves. And so that was a way that we were able to get more broadly connected to other parts of the supply chain. Um, this wasn't as directly tied into our daily tiered huddles because we were this was more like hourly tiered huddles, right? <laughs> Where it was just moving super fast. Uh, but it, the biggest issues would be raised at those levels and we'd make sure our leaders were aware the following day. Hey, here's an issue. Here's what we did about it. Um, here's what our next steps are. And then in turn, other priorities would come back to us. So uh, I think it was the second or third day. One of the priorities that came back to us is we need a way to test our own caregivers. Right. Um, how are we going to test them so that we can get them back to work? Because we also had this issue, right, of. We don't want some a potential caregiver who might have COVID working inside our hospital. And so we need to figure that out relatively fast. So we had to develop a little bit different process that integrated into this overall one to be able to take care of our own caregivers. And you talked about, I love this, this question around what's the most important problem to solve of trying to prioritize. Um, you mentioned the throughput challenge. And I, I was talking to some people yesterday, this is now looking ahead to the vaccination phase where, like you were saying, Nate, in your case, the value add was swabbing and here it's needle in the arm or the plunger going down and uh, vaccine going into arm. But they were talking about the need to speed that up, especially when vaccine supply won't be so much the constraint. Thinking of throughput, but then looking at balancing the patient experience, if at some point could it be too fast? And, and I think of, you know, um, a good lean assembly line 
where the employee can stop the line, pull the and on cord. The scenario people were talking about yesterday, it's almost the patient reaching up and pulling the and on cord. They're saying, well, wait a minute, I've got quite like, okay, wait, whoa, that was really efficient, but I've got questions. And I haven't been anywhere near a medical professional in a while. And, and so they were trying to think through how to account for that variation that was probably inevitable, that they weren't going to say, nope, time's up, move along. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess, you know, my question for you is um, some of the thought process or experience around balancing out uh, throughput and efficiency with what some of the patient's needs might be. I know obviously, you know, patients first yeah. being the philosophy there at Cleveland Clinic. How, how did you think through some? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question um, because there's always right issues that start to come up that are going to take a little bit longer. And so you, you work to address those that you can, you know, within that moment. And then at some point there's this recognition that says, Hey, this is going to take us a little longer to resolve this, this particular issue. What we ended up doing within that drive-through is we did end up uh, creating a spot where essentially a car could pull off into a, it's called a rest area. So we could have that longer conversation. And so we could move that work kind of outside and allow the rest of the line to continue. So that was an accommodation that we made that that addressed two different things. One patient has lots of questions. Um, Maybe sometimes we would also in those early days, most cars only had one patient that needed to be swapped, but some would roll through with five. And so you can imagine what that does to the overall process, right? And so we'd say, and, and initially it just slowed everything down. Hey, we got all five we got to do, slowed everything down. But then we figured out how to solve that problem. And that's when we created that rest area. Said, hey, that five, no problem. You go over to this rest area. We'll take care of you there. And the rest of the process continue. We would also be able to use that to address any uh, longer length uh, patient conversations or questions, because naturally there was a lot, everything was unknown at that point in time. So they had a lot of those questions. And, and what you're describing, that pull off, it reminds me of, let's say, what a Chick-fil-A might do. If there's yeah. a delay or a problem or some special order that interrupts the flow, and, and they're not the only ones who do this, but I think of Chick-fil-A because um, there, there was a case here with vaccination I figured, I think it was around Atlanta, or I'm just thinking of Atlanta because that's where Chick-fil-A is based, of uh, a Chick-fil-A store manager coming in and helping directing, <laughs> kind of fixing some of the uh, the, the flow for a drive-through vaccination service because he was building on his operations experience of a really busy yeah. drive-through line that in some cities also clogs up traffic if, if they're not flowing really well because their demand is really high at certain times of day. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities there. You know, we... Uh, again, this gets back into another improvement. At first, we said uh, first come, first serve, right, when we opened on Saturday, which was why someone was there at four in the morning for us opening at 11. And then we shifted. Um, that was This one took a little bit longer. I want to say it was maybe about a week. We shifted to appointments, right? We were able to figure out. But that was a whole problem that we had to solve of because uh, we don't schedule, typically, lab appointments. If you go in for a blood draw, you just walk in, right? Have a blood draw. So we didn't have a system set up that was equivalent for this type of, of process. We had a new problem that we had to solve uh, where we wanted to spread out the demand a little bit. And and that led to better patient experience too. I didn't have to wait in line for 10 hours, right? I, I could go down at my assigned time and, and get through there. Um, you know, now people tell me they get through in about 15 minutes. So a lot better. 
So one other thing a lot of organizations um, had to do around the country was um, set up additional hospital bed capacity, convention centers and arenas and other settings and, you know, uh, boats, Navy boats being docked um, off New York because there was so much unknown. How many beds, ICU beds would be needed? Um, you went through a similar process. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, shifting now from that early testing phase to the unknowns and, and the planning and the design around um, additional beds. Yeah, so it was probably about uh, maybe two to three weeks after we got the testing up and running somewhere in, in that neighborhood where we were, our, our next problem to solve as you were getting at is we were concerned about how many patients we would end up having to care for that we weren't prepared. And so we had a lot of surge plans that were inside our hospital, right? Let's use this space and let's use this space. But as you were describing, people knew we were going to run out of room. And so what we did is we have a academic medical building that is relatively new uh, right on our campus. It's a very large building. And we said, we are going to convert this building into a 1000 bed hospital with each of those beds having oxygen. So that's the big difference between what you see in a lot of the images on TV. Most of those are cots without oxygen. We are gonna have oxygen available for every one of these patients because they're in the hospital because they, and if they have COVID, they probably have some oxygen issues, right? So we were recognizing that and said, look, if they're okay to be on a cot and not on oxygen, it's probably time for them to go home. Um, so we started working towards that. And that was uh, a big challenge in many different ways. We had kind of your, you know, uh, engineering type of challenge of how do you plumb oxygen into a building that isn't retrofitted to do that. But we also had tremendous uh, other types of flow issues. And, and those flow issues were, again, back to, back to safety for our caregivers. When you think about a thousand bed hospital and, and the assumed uh, scenario here is that the whole hospital is COVID positive. So if you are out in this hospital, it is assumed to be COVID positive. And so you have to be protected from a PPE perspective. How do you bring people in just at the start of shift? How do you bring people in so that they can put on their PPE and go out and take care of patients? That is a huge logistical challenge. How do you handle breaks and lunches and bathrooms uh, for all the people that need to work there as well as all of the patients that are in these spaces? How do you handle the resupply process? If this is all COVID positive, how do I actually get the material here in a safe way and then go back to my the rest of my job? How do we run samples back and forth between this building and our lab? So we had all these flows that we had to figure out, and we had three weeks to do it, three weeks to build the 1,000-bed hospital. Uh, thankfully, the building was already built. No, we didn't have to wait for that lead time, but we did have to retrofit a lot. And so similar to our... Uh, drive-through experience, we did lots of simulations. So we would identify, again, all these problems. And we had this huge whiteboard that was uh, probably about 40 foot long in this room. Because as I mentioned, it was uh, it was a, a teaching uh, location. So they had uh, good whiteboards for us to be able to use, which, you know, any industrial engineer's dream uh, it was the space. So we would use this and we'd make a list 
of all the problems and all the issues we need to figure out. And then we would say, okay, which one do we need to work on now? Because we knew we were working towards, you know, ideally we're going to have all this stuff figured out, but we knew we needed to figure out a couple things uh, early on because the uh, engineering and construction team needed some answers. They needed some answers that say, okay, if I'm, I'm building a space for people to get on their PPE, how big does it need to be? What do you need in this space? Because I got work I got to go do, but I need you to tell me the design criteria around this. And so we would kind of figure those out together and we would do lots of walkthroughs and, and mock-ups. And then um, they'd launch a, a, an engineering construction team and poof, you know, a couple of days later, there it was. It was absolutely uh, amazing. We're fortunate. We never had to see a single patient uh, in that hospital. So I look at that also to say we have the only hospital that ever never had any quality or safety issues. Uh, so I was kind of proud of that. But that's probably because no patients came in, thankfully. Those construction crews probably had the same mindset you were describing earlier of, you know, having the sense of purpose and urgency and I'm going to run through walls and maybe, it can, yeah, maybe there were times they did have to run through walls with the piping yeah. or, or what have you, but I'm sure that motivation again was really powerful. You know, people, people asked, how come we can't do this? Like get all this done. Right. Uh, as quickly as we did at the beginning of COVID in our normal work. Right. They asked that question a lot. Um, and I think it's, you know, as we're doing some reflection on why, why is that the case? Why were we able to, to get this done? And I think it first starts with incredible clarity of purpose, real clarity of purpose. Drive through testing open run by Saturday at 11 a.m. That was the charge to the team. And the team was then charged with go figure out how to do this. They, weren't, they didn't have all this other stuff that they needed to consider, right? But it was a great, clear purpose and the team could work work towards that. So I think that was one. The second was obviously, and this was 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 a key, was in just incredible focus on that, right? In terms of the energy and the resources and uh, the intensity. You know, I used to be um, back before I joined Cleveland Clinic. I worked for Kodak, and we did a lot of rapid improvement events there. And I learned a ton through those, and those were very useful. And we made many many improvements, and they were very tiring. They're very tiring, right? You just, because of the level of intensity and, um, and people were able to do this during the time of COVID, right? We were all digging much deeper than we had before. Um, and we were fueled by that, but you can't necessarily work in that level of intensity for 15 years, right? At what point does fatigue or burnout or yeah, kick in, right? Is that, is that a sustainable pace? Right. So, so that, that pace is probably not sustainable, but the idea that says, hey, we're going to carve people out to focus on this problem and provide great clarity mm-hmm. around what this problem is that we're trying to solve. I do think those are two things that we can take away from the last year. Yeah. And I'm sure, yeah, that, that purpose included the clarity around what needed to be done by when, but the why was really powerful. This was not an arbitrary, let's just do it and rush just so someone could check a box in some plan. I mean, there, there was real community need, medical need, uh, organizational need. There was probably the most powerful why, right? Um, you know, it was when you knew you were there for everybody else. You were there for your family. You were there for your friends. You were there for people you didn't know. 
it, but everybody was in it for the same reason. So the why was incredibly strong. I've, I've heard a number of cases, uh, different health systems where as clinics started to open back up, the need for telemedicine was now very clear and urgent. It was no longer a nice to have thing on a roadmap. It was right there, needed to be done. And, you know, I've heard a number of executives um, say that, you know, our five-year plan turned into a three-week implementation. <laughs> which is an interesting lesson around nice to have versus must have, you know, optional versus required. Yeah. You know, we had the same, the same situation in our organization, right? Visits went way down in-person visits went way down. Virtual visits went way up. It's something we've had on our plan and has been part of our interest uh, for many years. And we, we have been doing it, but the amount just went absolutely through the roof. And I think it's another example of uh, once we have some good clarity, one, there also becomes a little bit more acceptance of something not working exactly right. So we had some technology issues, right? You're trying to ramp up this. And just like we all had at home with, with Zoom or Teams or whatever, right? Internet speed, so on and so forth. There were some different technology issues. And so we had some of those early on. And we've made improvements over the last year in the technology to make it more robust, repeatable, reliable for both our providers who are on one end, as well as our patients who are on the other end of that visit. Uh, but it was early on, you know, okay, we know it doesn't work exactly right, but I really want to see you to talk about, you know, perhaps your, it's your diabetes or whatever issue is really important and we don't want to let that go we need to have this dialogue and this conversation. It's very important to do that. So we've seen tremendous changes uh, over the last year. Our goal this year, we're looking for about 20% of our outpatient visits to be virtual. So we want to maintain that. We think it's we think it's great for the patients. I know when I'm a patient, I absolutely love it. I um I I do way more virtual than I do in person now, and I think I'll stay that way forever. It just save for me, right? Saves time in the car and all that other stuff. I mean, that, that, that compelling value proposition was the reason why it was on roadmaps and why it was planned. And that that day is now here. Um, you, know, I'm, you know, one data point, the one and only virtual visit I've done. It's maybe a month ago. And uh, I was told, you know, log into the video visit 15 minutes early. And to be honest, I kind of rolled my eyes and said, great, I'm going to log in. And how long am I going to sit there? Like, I mean, I could multitask. You know, kind of like if I was in a waiting room, you know, I have a phone or a book or something with me. So, all right, well, they want me to log in 15 minutes early. I'm a rule follower. I logged in 15 minutes early. And I was pleasantly surprised the provider got into the video visit 10 minutes before the scheduled time. And we were done. It was very quick kind of follow up kind of thing. And it was all done before the scheduled time arrived. So I thought, well, great. You know, I, I didn't just replace waiting in an exam room with waiting at home. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know if I was lucky or, you know, I, but anyway, I was I was really happy with with that outcome. Yeah, it's it's been it's been great for me. I mean, over the last couple of years, because I did the video visits even before the pandemic, I've used it in many different situations. It's saved uh, my family a trip to the emergency department after my son's bicycle accident, you know, where you get someone to give you an opinion. Hey, do I need to go to the emergency room? Here's where we're at. And, um, you know, 
as, as a parent in that scenario, you want to make sure your child's safe, of course. So it was uh, affirming to hear a medical professional give us the direction of what we needed to do. So I, I think they're here to stay in, you know, uh, the inventions by the by every organization were absolutely tremendous. Uh, and mm-hmm. Video visits were one of those. So we've covered you know kind of the testing phase and and planned ramp ups and starting to get back to care and the different changes that have taken place. So maybe the last thing we can touch on is vaccination, a new ramp up, mm-hmm. a different process. Um, I was wondering, Nate, if you can share you know a little bit of the story there and the process and what you've learned and what you I'm sure are continuing to learn. Yeah. So we've had a great team work on the, the vaccination process. I was, I was very involved, personally involved in those first two examples, uh, not as involved in the vaccination personally, but our team has been uh, Holly Bourne from our team has been doing a tremendous job in, in that space along with our pharmacists and our nurse and uh, again, our construction people, so on and so forth. You know, they, they, followed a lot of what we created early on. And you were describing that, Mark, in terms of let's develop uh, what we think could work. Let's practice it. Let's mock it up. And let's make sure we have clear, robust process in order to be able to handle this. And, you know, I've been fortunate. I've been able to go through and get my vaccination. So, you know, as, as I'm sure we do in any process we tend to enter, we kind of watch it with a certain eye, right? Well, hey, let's take a little closer look at this. And uh, my observation in the vaccination process is, one, um, it, it is it is an efficient process in that, you know, you come in, you check in, you say who you are, and then you, you go in, and in our case, we have small little tents set up uh, for privacy. It's inside a ballroom in a, in a, conf- in a uh, hotel uh, that is attached to our campus. And after you have after you have your vaccination, any questions? Nope. And I thought this was the best part. So when we, we go around, you know, we want to make sure that patients don't have an allergic reaction. And so now you have a lot of people to keep track of. How do you make sure that they actually stay for that 15 minutes and make sure they're okay? And so they just go with timers, right? Timers, they press start. You know, counts down 15 minutes, they go have a seat in any of these seats, timer goes off, you bring it back up, they clean it, it's ready for the next person. Like one of these little just kind of digital timers, it's like the size of a business card kind of timer? Exactly, exactly. And I thought that was a fantastic way because, you know, you have so many people coming through. How do you know, how how does any individual keep track of 15 minutes? And I, I thought that was just an ingenious approach to put it in the hands of, of others, literally with a timer. When this goes off, you're free to leave, and that has worked really well. So we've been um, we've been in the middle of vaccination within the state of Ohio, and you know that's again, I would say there's some similarities to what we were describing in the drive-through testing, right? You have the whole process of what the patient sees in terms of the actual vaccination administration, but then you have the whole supply chain, the supplies beforehand, right? Keeping it really cold, making sure that you take it out so you don't waste it. So again, figuring out all of those details of where are we going to put these special freezers? How are we going to get it from point A to the point of actual administration? How are we going to make sure that it has the appropriate time to thaw? And uh, obviously, most importantly, how are we going to make sure that we don't waste these um, precious resources? Right? Again, very, very common items to what we're used to when we think about process, right? We don't want waste. We don't want 
scrap that's thrown away. If we're, we're making aluminum cans, we don't want to waste the aluminum. In this case, it's even more precious, right, in terms of what that vaccination represents for the people. And so we created processes to make sure that we didn't have waste. And that was having a standby list. You know, we were very early on, we created the standby list where we could call people and says, hey, we had, you know, five no-shows today. Would you like to, to come down? You're next on the standby list. And um, going back to just two little details I'm, I'm curious about. Um, when you talk about the privacy, I've seen um, a lot of videos and pictures of, of different setups. Is, is the privacy a matter of, I, I guess, if you're in a warm weather climate, people might have short sleeve shirts. Being Cleveland, if it's cold and people have sweaters and I guess getting access to arm may require a state of undress that people would want privacy. Yep. Yeah, that was certainly a, a big driver in it, um, recognizing that, you know, when we started to administer, it was still pretty cold outside. So people were coming in with their jo- their coats and their sweaters and, and those types of things. So that certainly enables it. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's part of our patient experience element as well. You were describing that earlier, right? How do you keep patients first? And so I think it creates a tighter connection between the nurse or um, whomever is administering the vaccine and the patient themselves. It creates a space for a dialogue, for questions, a little bit more calm um, in that particular moment. You know, there, there's obviously, as we know, there's a degree of nervousness for a lot of people. A lot of people are excited about it. And a lot of people are nervous about it. Uh, so it gave them a space to be able to ask questions that was kind of uh, a little bit insulated from the rest of the public. Yeah. Um, just thinking of um, clothing and I, you, you, you might not have saw, but Dolly Parton put out a video of her vaccination. At I heard about it, but I have not seen it yet. It's on my list of things. It's, it's cute. Um, she's she's um, it's very funny, but, you know, she, she's sending up an important message of encouraging people to get vaccinated. And uh, she wore a top and I forget what my, my wife called it. I was like, oh, that's a such and such top. Something, but but um, the, the short she had cutouts. So it was a, a blouse, a long sleeve blouse, but just the style of the blouse had cutouts in the shoulder and enough down into her arm that gave a perfect window. <laughs> I know. I mean, that was an intentional choice, I'm sure, on her part. A perfect window uh, for the vaccinator to come in with the needle. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of taking the uh, the setup steps, right, and, and going from internal to external, single-minute exchange of dye principles. Dolly Parton was uh, all over it, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, and I talked to somebody else yesterday when you talk about that external setup. Um, they had set up basically for each lane of people being vaccinated, two teams. And basically, it's just kind of flipping in, flipping out, doing the setup, and then coming in to work with the patient and then the, then team two is prepping and just having this constant cycling through um, to minimize the time. And in that video with Dolly, um, she actually gets a little impatient. She's being cute about it, but she's getting a little impatient and fussy with the doctor because he's fiddling with, I think, opening the syringe package and the stuff that you and I would look at and say like, oh, that should have been externalized. <laughs> don't make Dolly, don't make any patient wait. You could do that in advance. So it's really interesting to see how people are um, innovating and, and doing things to help improve. Flow. So we, we did that within the drive-through. We chose not to do it within the, um, within the vaccination. And I think, cause there's a design difference. So within the drive-through space was very constrained and people uh, changing PPE was even longer. Okay. Between patients. And so we would have this team that would come in, they'd swab, they would come out and they'd 
work, change their PPE, you know, uh, wash their hands, um, don their new PPE and come back. So we, we essentially were able to do that to keep that flow of cars going because we were constrained in a physical space. And where we are doing our vaccinations currently, we're not as constrained in the physical space. So we've just kind of spread out the stations rather than them having swapping at the spot. And so I think part of what you're getting there is you need to understand what problem you're trying to solve, right? And, and perhaps if you're in one of these large mega sites, as an example, uh, maybe that is the way you want to do it. And maybe if you're in a smaller site, you don't need to do that. So understanding what problem you're trying to solve is a really important before we go ahead and put in a, a particular practice. Yeah. And that's a great reminder of taking a look at your own work and your own circumstances instead of just copying a best practice. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of, you know, longstanding good practices at Cleveland Clinic. So it was a chance to recap. And again, I would encourage people, if you want some of the background, this is just a couple of years ago, um, you can go back to episode 282 and listen uh, to Nate and Dr. Lisa Garian um, talk a little bit more about the background of continuous improvement at Cleveland Clinic. But I think one thing that that's noteworthy and worth looking at, you know, to learn from, not the copy, is the Cleveland Clinic improvement model. Um, I was wondering if you could just give maybe the elevator pitch about that. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes where people can find this online. Um, you know, what is that model and why has that been useful to be able to put in front of? Yeah, that, thanks for asking that question, Mark. So this this model really serves as our aspiration. Uh, it is what we want to become across Cleveland Clinic in terms of the way that we improve. It's a unifying model. Quality improvements, patient experience improvements, productivity improvements, so on and so forth. And really what we do within the model is we outline the behaviors that we're looking for, the behaviors of senior leaders, managers, and those that are doing the work each and every day. Because we all have different responsibilities and it's how those connect that really drive uh, our ability to improve. Additionally, we've outlined in our organization what we feel is important are four key systems, organizational alignment, visual management, problem solving, and standardization. We feel those are important for us. For a different organization, it might be a different set of systems. It might be a different set of behaviors. Uh, we use this as our aspiration and our roadmap and say, this is what we want to create. And then we create the systems to support the behaviors. So you mentioned tiered huddles as an earlier example. That is a system that we created to help our organization identify and solve problems each and every day. We do it throughout our organization every day. Uh, where we are looking to understand what problems are getting in the way of providing care and solving and resolving those problems, as well as understanding our daily operations. So we create these systems that support the behaviors. Just before I came on with you, uh, we were actually looking at the improvement model because every year we revise it. We improve it. We realize that uh, our organization continues to evolve and change. And so I was with a, a cross-functional team, people from other parts of the organization outside of our continuous improvement team, getting their input on potential changes to the improvement model. And so we, uh, as you like to say, we improve the way we improve. And that is something that we take really seriously. And I was just starting to look through the past years and say, you know, maybe there's a story here. If I go all the way back to the first one in 2014, 15, and look at each year, what's the story of how it's changed and evolved over time? Part of that story is it has evolved as the Cleveland Clinic has evolved. 
our focus on patients, uh, empathy, our focus on high reliability, uh, our focus on speaking up, all of those things are becoming stronger and stronger parts of our improvement. There are certain principles that are very consistent, like patients first, I imagine, is forever a foundation at Cleveland Clinic, but then some of the details and the specifics within the frameworks of, of values and principles then evolve. Very true. Yeah. So I hope everyone will go um, check that out. I'll, I'll make sure I'm linking to the latest revision. And then maybe just one last question, and maybe we leave this as a teaser for uh, a future episode, um, perhaps like when things calm down a little bit. Um, You've you've um, had the opportunity um, to to use uh, process behavior charts, uh, a topic near and dear to my heart. Uh, I won't I won't go on and on about it, but you know it's a method from uh, that I've shared in my book Measures of Success. I was wondering again, maybe just on an elevator pitch scale, if you could share just a little bit, and we can dive into that deeper. Story. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have that conversation because I think it's it's fundamental to these problems that we try to solve as uh, continuous improvement professionals, as we try to solve as an organization. And that is back to this question of first, um, what matters most, which problems am I trying to improve? And, and secondarily, uh, is this getting better, worse, or staying the same? Because that helps reinforce what problems I need to solve. So we've started to use them with the majority of our measures so that we can look at our performance over time and we can say things like, hey, this is essentially the same. It's not getting better. It's not getting worse. And maybe for this particular measure, that's okay. For this measure, staying the same might not be okay, right? And we need to do something different and we need to engage in problem solving. So we use those. We've built a series of dashboards with our colleagues in business intelligence. Uh, they've done just an absolutely fantastic job of making it very easy for the user to take advantage of this knowledge. And what I mean by that is um, you, you don't need to be a Six Sigma black belt to take advantage of what these tools can do for you. You don't need to have a degree in statistics or engineering to take advantage of these tools. We present it in a way to the user where the limits are automatically calculated and whether or not it is stable or unstable is also automatically calculated. And in turn, what that allows people to do is say, ah, this is unstable to go understand why. And that's how we're using it across our organization. We've made tremendous progress over the last couple of years. Uh, we had you visit us a few years ago and, and, and share this kind of the, the thinking in your book with the team. Um, and it has been absolutely fantastic and allowed us to talk about the things that are most important. Well, that's great. And I like the way you're integrating that and incorporating that. So I'll look forward to hearing more. Um, for those who are listening and, and not watching on YouTube, when Nate was saying staying the same, you couldn't see his finger kind of suggesting the fluctuation up and down, let's say, around an average. So this, quote unquote, the same. It's not really the same, but. Yeah, it, it, great, great point. Yeah, the, uh, I got to work on my uh, radio skill. <laughs> That's okay. Um, and for those of you who are just listening, you don't see um, that that Nate is uh, enjoying a bright sunny day in Cleveland, Ohio. So, um, Nate, thank you for um, not being outside in the sun and enjoying that. Thank you for being here on the podcast with us, and thank you for sharing you know the important work that's that's being done and continues to be done at Cleveland Clinic. I really appreciate you being able to share that. With Thanks, us. Mark. You know what? I'm here on behalf of just an amazing team. I've 
been at the clinic now for 14 years. And the reason is the people are absolutely incredible. People on our continuous improvement team are partners in the organization and nursing and quality are providers. Uh, we just have an absolute world-class team and we're, we're blessed to be a part of it. So thanks for letting us share our story. Of course. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.